any suffering or difficulty in your life. But just imagine that some people do. Uh, I have numerous stories, but how should I tell you? Or why should I tell you? You all read your newspaper, right? Here's one. A devoted father who built a career helping the sick and injured is accused of killing his four-year-old son and trying to smother his other two children before attempting to take his own life. We had a story in Boston not long ago when a police officer, as he came through the door of an apartment just to watch a 22-year-old son, a 22-year-old boy, cut the head off of his uh, three-year-old daughter with a birthday cake knife. Um... These sort of things offend our moral sensibilities, do they not? Uh, One of the, I think, one of the strongest objections that can be raised against Christianity is the problem of evil. I know it's not a defeater, but I'm saying I was not a Christian for 20 years. After I became a Christian, and then I was a pastor, I realized that one of the biggest issues I would have to deal with was suffering. People want to know why. And so it is uh, maybe more practical for me, uh, personal, that I started doing studies. What does the Bible say about this? What can we as Christians say? How do we talk to uh, the person who's just lost their three-year-old daughter who was run over by a drunk driver. They loved the Lord. They were doing everything right. And they're wondering why that happened to me. Missionaries. Think of our wonderful missionary friends who lost their child. He lost his wife and one of their children uh, being shot down over Brazil uh, a few years ago. And you wonder, why? I mean, these are nice folks. They love Jesus. Doesn't God care? And what about the children? That, to me, has always been the most difficult. And how many stories have you heard of in the last six weeks of somebody who has killed their children, killed themselves, and killed the wife, or the wife, whatever? Too much. So, what do we say as Christians? Stalin is said to have killed over 60 million people people. Over 60 million. We always used to point to uh, we used to point to the Holocaust and of course that was terrible, wasn't it? Pol Pot is said to have cleaned out maybe upwards of one third of the population of Cambodia. Now, we don't ask the question why in in an accusatory way but as a confirmatory way. God, if you were there, help us to understand why this is happening. An accusatory way would be, God, why are you doing this? That's accusatory. Confirmatory is, I believe you, God, I love you, I believe your word, but now help me to understand why is this happening in your world? So how do we answer as evangelicals? The question assumes that the presence of the evil in this world requires the rational conclusion there is no God. And I have talked to so many that would claim that and doing a lot of work in Eastern Europe where there were a number of atheists, they would say this is simply not 
consistent to have the kind of a God that you have. I remember one day I was in a major city in the Soviet, former Soviet Union and I'd been asked to do a radio broadcast and I went down to the radio station and I was met by a very attractive young Russian lady who was going to do my interview. She spoke perfect English. And as we're walking out into the back into this courtyard, the first thing she says to me is, Dr. Little, can you tell me why do we suffer so much? I'd never met that woman before. And that's the first question that she wanted to ask me. And I said, well, my dear, can you tell me why do you think things should be any different than they already are? If you believe there is no God, then why shouldn't things be like this? What's the complaint? And all of a sudden, she was stunned. She didn't know what to say next. And now we have a conversation. I want to make it very clear, lest you be concerned about my theological posture. (laughs) So I believe that God is all good in the absolute sense. I believe that God is all-knowing, past, present, and future. I believe God is all-powerful. I believe God is not indifferent. I believe history is under God's providential guidance. And what happens on this earth is allowed by God. I hope I now get my evangelical uh, card that, yes, I do believe this. All right, so whatever I say following, you have to say, but he said he does believe this, and you're going to have to be charitable and believe that I take these definition of these same words the same way you would, all right? So I do claim to be evangelical in all of these areas, but you might wonder at the end. The end is sure, I believe that. I believe that there is no doubt that everything is going to be exactly as is predicted in the Bible, Okay, Isaiah 44 through 47 teaches us that, I think, unequivocally. So, uh, whenever I'm going to say, I uh, hope that you can keep these in mind. Uh, The nature of the question. Now, the question that we have is, on what grounds uh, can we think of whereby a triune or Trinitarian God would be morally justified in allowing so much evil in the world, much of which appears to be what we call pointless or gratuitous, right? That is, you know what gratuitous means. I'm not suggesting you don't, but just to make clear. If I go to a movie, and there's a lot of foul language in the movie, and we leave the movie theater or the cinema, and you say to me, well, that was a great movie, but the language was so gratuitous. And what we mean is that you could, have, you could have taken out all the bad language and the storyline would not have been changed a bit. All right? We call that even today. Delta used to do this. They used to sanitize their film when they used to have the big screen, only one screen, you know, in their 737, 77, 77s or whatever. Uh, but now they don't do it because you have your own smaller screen and you can... As a matter of fact, it's illegal for you to do it. Uh, So, gratuitous evil. This is what really bothers us. Things that seem to have no purpose at all. I mean, what is the purpose of a 22-year-old cutting the head off of a 3-year-old? Now, I'm going to argue there is no purpose. Now, what I would argue is that gratuitous evil, if it exists it would not count against the moral perfections of God. 
Now that's the trick, <laughs> so to speak. Now, some people say, well, if there is gratuitous evil, that is, it has no point, then God is not sovereign. And I would argue there's been a misstep somewhere, because I do believe in the sovereignty of God. As I say, not accusatory, but confirmatory. Uh, The atheist conclusion, it says, it seems more likely that God does not exist than he does exist, as it seems that allowing all this evil, this horrific evil, this uh, what we call evil uh, suffering of the innocent, seems to be totally incongruous with who he is. Now notice that the, uh, this is what we call the evidential argument, and here the argument is not that God absolutely doesn't exist. That's called the possibility argument. This is called the probability argument. And it's simply this. It's more likely that God doesn't exist than he does exist. Now, as an unbeliever, try just for a moment to put your, your feet in their shoes. Would you think it looks that way? Would you think, just on the face of it, that you and I serve a God who loves this world, who cares for this world? Oh, And what about the children? What did we used to sing in Sunday school? Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. He does. And what about the little eight-year-old girl that gets raped by her uncle, the the, the deacons, the pastor, pastor's son? What does she think? Oh, Jesus loves me? Probably not. Right? Or he loves everybody but me. Now these are serious issues. We can't just sweep them under the rug. Well, what have we traditionally tried? How have we traditionally tried to answer this question? It's a big question, isn't it? Let's all agree to that. God will bring some good from this. How many have heard that? Oh, yes. I saw the hand. We'll get you to sign the card later. Uh, God will bring some good from this. Romans 8, 28, right? For we know that all things work together for good of them, love God, and those who call according to his purpose. But, at the most, this says, is that God, all things work together for good for whom? For those that love God. It says nothing about the rest of the world. So it's not big enough to, call, to create what we call an answer for all the evil that's in the world. And I could talk about any other qu- verse you'd like to bring up. Uh, it's a mystery. We don't know the mind of God in this matter. Now this confuses me just a tad. Why? Well, on the one hand, as evangelicals, we say that Christianity gives us a superior worldview that answers all the questions of the world more consistently than any other worldview. And then I'm asked, what about the problem of evil? We say, I don't know, it's a mystery. That's a real good answer, isn't it? It's a mystery. Now, I'm not saying there aren't certain things that are mystery, but I think this one is not. God's knowledge is not extended into the future, therefore he can't stop it. This is known as open theism. I think that compromises too much the evangelical, or I should say, orthodox theology. So I'm not an open theist. 
God is judging people for their disobedience to Him. Is that possible? Is it possible? I'm just asking, is it possible? Well, it's possible. And why would you even think that it might happen? Well, because it's in the, it's in the Bible. We have people who are judged, right? Well, if you try to think of one, Sodom and Gomorrah will fit the bill. Yes? But here's the problem. It's what we call an epistemological problem. How do you know? How do you know? So I find this one to be no help. I remember during 9-11, most of you, well, some of you won't remember 9-11, I think, but uh, some of you will remind, remember 9-11, and I remember that so many evangelicals went to the, uh, on television and they said, God was judging America in 9-11 for their homosexuality and for abortion. But why hit New York City? I mean, I've got some other places in mind that might, you might get more abortion clinics and you might get, well, anyway. Uh, but in three days or more later, what were they doing? Back on television saying they had made a mistake. See, it would have been better that it had never been said in the first place. Now, I appreciate that they wanted, they have some, try to answer this, but I'm going to say, even if God is judging people for their disobedience to him, we have no way of knowing it, so it's not a real help. Secondly, Peter says that if God were to judge, judgment begins where? At the household of God. So, what we might see under Peter's understanding is a few churches, but anyway. So, where are we? Well, this is the most common answer. God allows only that uh, evil in this world from which he can bring about a greater good. Hence, this is called the greater good explanation. It comes from Augustine. And this has been the pretty much the traditional state uh, of uh, response. So, if, uh, so, God allows only that evil in this world from which he can bring about a greater good. So, let's ask ourselves the question. Can you think of a Major evil today, I'm not asking one that you've committed, but a major evil today that you really think is an evil. Oh, can I take one for you? So, I mean, we've got to get this thing going. I don't have all day. What about abortion? Do you think abortion is an evil? Do you think abortion is an evil? I've got enough people to count for a quorum, and we just voted that, ev- that abortion is an evil. Now, Is it existing today? Well, under the greater good, it's existing. Why? Because God wants to bring some good from it. Hmm. Well, now, what might be a problem with this? Well, if God allows evil to bring about some good, then either the good that obtains is necessary to the plan of God, or it's not. In other words, what good comes from, let's just say, abortion? Right? Well, if the good is necessary to the plan of God, then what else is necessary to the plan of God? The evil that brings the good. Hmm. If the evil is not necessary to the plan of God, then it serves no purpose, and now it's uh, the greater good fails, right? Because it says good will always come. Or 
consider if the good is necessary, excuse me, to the plan of God, then so is the evil. Necessity of evil means God is the source of evil, which is counter to John 1, 5. I don't think there's any way around this. I've had a number of people try to find a way around this and argue against it, but I see no way around this conclusion that God becomes the author of evil, which seems to me to be counter to what I read in the Bible. And we just heard, you know, about, you know, this is, uh, Allah may want to do this, but our God doesn't do this. I see no way around it. But if you think there is, I'm more than happy to address your question. Also, this confuses why God allows evil with what God might do with evil after it's a part of history. Okay? In other words, we aren't arguing that God may not do certain things with evil once it's a part of history. That's different than saying it's why God allowed it. Okay? So we say, um, God allowed X, that's the evil, to bring about, to do some good. What I'm not saying is that God never brings good out of evil. What I'm arguing against is that's not why God allowed the evil. He's providentially involved. He can work in through the affairs of men and women, this world, and we have many, I think, examples of this. It would be a logical fallacy to argue from the consequent a good consequent in, to make the cause good. Now, just as an example, to put it in a different frame, suppose that Mary, I think, I'm, suppose Jill marries Bob, right? And Bob is an unbeliever. But after Jill and Bob are married for three years, then Bob becomes a Christian through Jill's witness. And we say, it's wonderful that Bob has become a Christian. But do we ever say that it's good now that you can marry an unbeliever because it's about to bring a good? Well, we don't argue that way. That's what we call consequentialism. But we'd fall into that very logical fallacy if we accept this. If if God, ah, I have one other, I guess it's not there. If God allows good, excuse me, if God allows evil to bring about good, now in the case of abortion, then the fact of the matter is, why would you stop the evil? If you stop the evil, you end up doing what? You're stopping the good. Oh my. And yet, does God call us to defend the, to stand for social justice? Are we to stand for the disadvantaged? Do you think we ought to stand against those who are abused? Should we stand against, should we stand for the unborn? But wait a minute. If the abortion is going to bring about a good, if we stop the abortion, then we've stopped the good, and now there's a world that could have had some good in it, but you got in the way. And, but you go, I'm sorry, you got in the way because you were being obedient to God. Because Amos says we should do this. Now see, doesn't it get a little 
confusing at this point? Well, it does to me, but maybe you're better at this than I am. Well, let's then think about God's sovereignty, because I do believe when I say that God is sovereign, we simply mean what? God is in control. I believe that. But there are two ways in which you can understand God being in control. One is a determinative way. That is, God could be in control by determining everything that happens. Would he clearly be in control at that point? Now, this would be likened to the person who's driving their vehicle down the highway and on a slippery road, and the car begins to veer into the, uh, the right-hand ditch, and then a person then turns the wheel and brings the vehicle back onto the highway again. In that sense, the driver is in control of the automobile, and it does exactly what the driver wants it to do. That's what we would call a determinative view. But there's also another view, and we would call that a governing view. How many times do we hear the phrase, the man is in control of his family? We use it that way all the time. Well, this we mean the rules are established, and it's the father's responsibility to keep the family within the rules. But people have freedom of choice within those established rules, right? I take the sovereignty of God to be this way. I read in the Old Testament, God says, if you do this, I will bless you, but if you do this, I'm going to curse you. Why do we have all the commands if everything is determined? So I'm going to argue for a view of sovereignty that's the second kind. Um, as I've said, this I could give you the scriptures. Another problem here is with a confusion over two words. One is purpose, the other is reason. Now, I will argue that there is a reason for everything that happens. I'm going to say there may not be a purpose for everything that happens. You say, now, are you splitting hairs? Well, let me give you an example to make a, this distinction. Purpose is something intentionally planned. Oh, of course, God does plan some things, right? Uh, reason only means that there's an explanation. So let me explain how there would be to differentiate. Okay? So you come to me and you say, <clears throat> Bruce, heard you didn't pay uh, your electric bill last week. I didn't. Why? None of your business. No, why? I didn't have any money. Now, have I given you a purpose or reason? I've given you a reason, right? Ah, but now suppose a different scenario, and you come to me and you say, Bruce, you didn't pay your electric bill this week. Yeah, you're right. Why? Because I am protesting the rate hike in my electric usage. Now I've given you a purpose. So there's a purpose in my not paying my light bill. So you can see there is a difference between a reason and a purpose. You say, well, yeah, but the purpose is also give us a reason. Surely it does. But it's primarily a purpose. So I would say we need to keep these two things very clear. So let's consider what I would call a larger narrative, what we call the zoom out. 
there is a prevailing overarching order to creation which provides the arena where humanity can make real choices. Now, I don't have the time to go to you to Genesis chapter 1 and work our way through to Genesis chapter 4, but there we find very clearly there is order, isn't there? Right? What does the sun do? Other than make you warm, it rules the day. The moon does what? Rules the night. Seeds come out of the ground and they produce after their own kind. There's order. So, not only does God choose what he is going to create, he also chooses the rules by which he will interact with that creation and how that creation will work. This is what I've called creation order, or I call it the syllabus of creation. When uh, some of you here teach, when uh, I teach a class, uh, I write a syllabus, right? And in the syllabus, it tells students... This is what you need to do. This the grading procedure, etc., etc. Now, considering that I'm a fair man, at the outset, who's free to construct the syllabus? Well, I am, because I'm sovereign. Noel, I am the professor. So I get to write the syllabus. And, but the students, and now it says, oh, if you get this, you get an A, this the B, C. Do students have to do any of the assignments? Nope, they don't have to. But guess what? There are consequences. You're free to get an A. You're free to get a B. That's your choice. You want to do this job. You want to do that job. You want to do this assignment. You want to do, you can get, a, get this. You can get that. If you don't want to come to class, you don't have to come to class. Students always say to me, do I have to do this? I say, no, you don't have to do it. You just have to pay the consequences. That's all. You don't have to do it. And so your pastor knows, just pay the consequences. Now, uh, what I'm saying is, notice that this is arrangement by which God interacts with his creation and maintains orders by his providential work, working often mysteriously to bring history to its proper conclusion. This respects the order. It's what makes human history more than a piece of theater. As we're not just puppets. We're not just playing out the... The, uh, the script, so to speak, are we? That's why we're told to do this and not do that. If everything was determined, there'd be no reason to command us to do this and to do that. Because there'd be no sense. It includes prayer. People say to me, your view means that, um, that God is at my beck and call. No, he's not. But if God has worked into the syllabus, that he's going to allow you to pray and he will hear your prayer and respond to that prayer, that's God's choice. That's just the way the, word, the order is written, just like I can tell a student. <clears throat> if, you, <clears throat> if you have an extenuating situ- uh, uh, circumstance, you can come to me and I can alter some things. That's my choice. Well, it's built into the syllabus. I can use grace. Uh, miracles, uh, or human freedom. Because of God's providential dynamic involvement within the created order, human choices do make a difference, but they can't defeat God's ultimate purposes. So we have, if you can think of it, it's sort of, well, it's like, if you can think about two parallel lines, and this is the order of history, all right? History cannot go outside of these two lines. Inside of these lines, you have freedom. And these two lines are going to lead you right to where the conclusion of 
history is exactly as God said it would be. But in between, now listen, think about this. 2 Kings chapter 20. I know you've all memorized that by heart. But that's the case of Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah is going to die. Do you remember this? And what does he do? He prays. And poor old Isaiah, he's the one who had to bring the bad news in the first place. So he leaves the king. The king, Hezekiah, turns his face to the wall, weeps bitterly, and prays to God. Before Isaiah gets outside, out of the court, he is told by the Lord, go back and tell Hezekiah, you're not going to die. Now, do prophets always tell the truth? If they're a true prophet of the Lord. So at 10 o'clock in the morning, was Hezekiah going to die? Now we're at 11 o'clock in the morning, he's prayed in between, he's not going to die immediately. And God tells us why. Because he says, I have seen your tears, I've heard your cry. Do you see, the order of creation is such that it allows for those sort of things. It allows for you to pray for John and Joan and Mabel and Bill and they have cancer. Why do you bother to pray for them if you think that everything is determined anyway? It's kind of a wonderful thing to know that you and I can pray and that things like what happened with Hezekiah can really happen with Hezekiah. As with one of your friends. Part of this order means that man has some freedom of choice, choices that have true uh, consequences. So, in Genesis chapter 3, God says, in the day that, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God says, in the day that thou eatest thereof, dying, you shall surely die. Chapter 3, what do they do? They eat, what happens? They die. See? Tree one. If you eat, you will die. If you don't eat, you remain status quo in the garden and enjoying everything. There are two trees in human history. The first tree is in the Garden of Eden. If you eat, you die. The second tree is on Calvary. And there it's if you eat. You live. What John chapter 6 says. Everyone who eateth of my flesh, drinketh of my blood, hath, hath life. See, personal choices really make a difference, don't they? That's why we need to be prayerful about the choices we make. Because they do have consequences, serious consequences. Not only for me, but for you. The people you know. With some sense of freedom... I think it's impossible for us to love God. What does Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven say? Of the greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is likened unto which you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love by definition requires some power of choice. Now in academic circles we call this libertarian freedom. You have the right, you have choice. Now, has God limited the choices you can make? Absolutely. 
We're not free. That's why I don't like the word free will. We're not free to do anything, right? I can't, I can't just will myself to, to go up to the ceiling and fly around for a while. I don't have those. I own, the choices I have are only choices within those given to me by God in the created order. And those choices are given to me. When you and I pray, not my will, but your will be done, what I believe we're actually thinking on should be praying is that, God, I don't want anything, any answer to my prayer to ever to take history outside of these boundaries. Sometimes you know that humans have made choices that have, it apparently would have taken history outside of the boundaries and God has to intervene providentially. Can you think of one? Well, of course we have one in Genesis chapter 6 of the flood. But what about Genesis chapter 10 where you have the Tower of Babel and nothing will be withheld and does God have to intervene to keep those choices in line? Well, I believe probably God does that more than we know. All right, I just know that he can do it because I see it in the Bible. But with that, giving us these choices, of course comes not only great consequences for us and other human beings, but it's the only way we can love God. You cannot be forced to love God. Daddy drives in the dooryard, the little boy comes running out, and he says, I hate my mother, I hate my mother. Now he said, son, no more of that stuff. You go in and tell your mother that you're, you're sorry that you love her. No, son. If you don't, I'm going to yank your arm off and hit you over your head. <laughs> so he goes inside and he says, I'm sorry, I love you, and walks out. Aha. Uh-huh. But what about the little child that's playing on the floor playing with her dolls or him with his trucks or vice versa, and just decides to crawl up in mom's lap, puts his arms around her and says, Mom, I love you. Now, which mother thinks the child has said, I love you, meaning I love you? Of course, because it's a free choice. I think it's that way with our God. Augustine said, it's better to have a, <coughs> better to have a runaway horse than a stone, as if all we had were just puppets, it would be better to have, give man some libertarian freedom even though he would go against God, which is a sad thing, but then God comes and rescues us, right? Um, this is what makes the deeds of man either praiseworthy or, should we say, worthy of judgment. If you're forced to do something, nobody says, boy, we, that was a wonderful thing you did, brother. That was so good of you to do that. You say, well, but I had a forty-five to my head. Well, then you see, it's not praise anymore. It's obedience. Why do I condemn Hitler? Why do we condemn Pol Paul? Why do we condemn Mussolini? Why do we condemn uh, Lenin or Stalin? Why do we condemn these people? Because we think they could have done differently. They weren't forced to do what they do. Uh, when we live in a fallen world where bad things happen and God often allows it, he's honoring his, uh, his form of creation do you think that God grieves over the twisted way his creation is today? Yes, I do. Do you think God grieves when men reject him? Ah, uh, if you don't think so, uh, let me give you the words of Jesus as he's coming down off the Mount of Olives. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's weeping. 
How often I would have gathered you as a hen doth gather her chicks, but what? You would not. That's the heart of God. When he sees the widow's son, the widow from Nain, on the stretcher, when he sees Lazarus in the tomb, what do we find him doing? Weeping. I think God is greatly grieved. I think God grieves when the little four-year-old girl gets her head cut off. I don't have time to address how do we handle children. The power of possibility of making choices is important to human beings made in the image of God. It's important. In fact, when we want to punish somebody, what do we do? We limit their choices. Little, little boys and girls that get in trouble. I mean, little boys, little girls never get in trouble. Little boys. And what happens? All right, no television tonight. Go to your room. You won't go out to play. The man commits a crime. Where do we put them? We put them in prison. What are we doing? Well, we used to. Limit their choices. When choices are denied, people lose hope. The Bible says, um, the Bible says that... Um, uh, well, it does say that, um, something about hope, um, where there is no hope. Now, that's where there is no vision. What's that? Yes, thank you. Who said that? Oh, yes. yes. She's, I, I pushed the button and she got uh, the notice. Answer this question for me. Yeah, hope deferred does what? Makes the heart sick. When you think you live in a world where there are no windows and there are no doors, believe me, I've counseled for uh, some 15 years. People who come in who think that all their choices are gone brings into clinical depression. Why? Because it's against humanity. We, part of our humanness. Um, remember, God has not promised a good will come from all evil, but he has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Um, he has promised... That, uh, that what uh, he has planned for the end of humanity and so we can trust that this is because of the larger narrative so I think and I know this is so quick I've uh, just kind of given you some things to think about but I think that given this scenario that it is possible that given the what we call libertarian freedom and the way God has structured things, that there are sometimes I make very bad choices and there's, there aren't, there's no cosmic purpose to it at all. May God somehow work in it to bring about some good? Yes, but that's a different story. That doesn't explain to me why I did it in the first place. So we would call that gratuitous evil. We don't need to find a purpose. This is where, um, quickly, I remember a sitting teaching in a class and a young lady I was teaching this particular subject a lady in the class started crying and that's never a good sign and after the class she came to me and she said oh I wish I'd have heard this ten years ago I said why she said because my dad uh, was a police officer working off duty one day in a restaurant was shot in the back during a robbery and she said that uh, bullet uh, lodged in his spine and since that day he's been a paraplegic she said uh, our pastor told us 
that God allowed that because he was going to bring some good from it. She said with tears, sobbing, we've been looking for the good for 10 years. My dad wants nothing to do with the Lord anymore. I alone in my family are living for the Lord. And I think what I would argue is, let's stop looking for the, the purpose. Let's stop looking for the good and let's stop looking to God. Whatever he may or may not be doing, but just believe that there may not be any purpose. By the way, when I debate this with atheists, you see, once we have taken this away from the atheist, see, <laughs> their argument is over because they want to keep forcing me. What's the purpose? What's the purpose? And I'm saying, I never said there would be a purpose. All I've got to demonstrate that there, there is no purpose, that it wouldn't count against the moral perfections of God. Nothing happens for the reason. We live in a fallen world. It's messy, isn't it? Unpredictable, isn't it? But I will tell you this, as I kind of go quickly, we must make choices to stand against moral evils. Nationally and individually. Oh, by the way, we must be prepared to die. I remember I was being interviewed right after 9-11. And somebody said, I was taking this view. And someone said, well then, then uh, what, 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 do you, what will you say in all of this? And I'd say, this is what I would say. I would say the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 13. You must be prepared to die at any moment. You live in a fragile world. Remember, they came to Jesus and he talked about the Tower of Siloam that fell on 18... And then he did another one about Herod had mixed the blood of the Galileans in their sacrifice. And what was Jesus said? Except you repent, you'll likewise perish. He was saying, talking about belief in him. What things, these great tragedies show us, folks, is that we live in a very fragile world. And we never know when we leave our home, but the Tower of Siloam may fall on us. Therefore, what's the great lesson? Behold, today is the day of salvation. Always be prepared. I have used this as a way of getting into evangelism. Why? Because it brings us around to the question that's really important, isn't it? Um, He allows suffering not because he lacks the power or desire to stop it, but he's going to honor his structure. Matter of fact, Peter calls him the faithful creator. Now, as a parent, have you ever made rules for your home? Have your children ever broken those rules? Did it hurt you deeply to punish them when they broke those rules? Of course. But had you not obeyed those rules, you would have been sowing the, your, your family to the, to, the, to the wind. Because keeping the rules is what gives children respect for their parents. So it's honoring the rules you set up, as God does. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort. His grace is always sufficient. He's not indifferent. He puts our bottles in a tear, <laughs> our tears in a bottle. Uh, the widow's son. Do you notice that's an interesting one? 
do you know in that particular case, no one asked Jesus to do anything? Nobody. Nobody pulls on his garment. Nobody begs him. He just moved with compassion and heals this young man. That's the mind of the father. Or, as I've said, Jesus outside of Lazarus, weeping over Jerusalem. Where is God in all of this? Well, I've kind of given you this. Um, oh, I don't know if I can go back there or not. Okay. Uh, let me just go down this way then. How many have read Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? And this is from the uh, magician's nephew. And if you remember, those of you who have read it, Diggory had inadvertently brought the white witch into Narnia. And Aslan tells him he's got to do something now as a consequence. You also remember that Diggory's mom was deathly ill. And so Diggory thought for a moment that he might bargain with Aslan, that he would uh, do what was necessary if Aslan would do something for his mother. However, he realized immediately that Aslan was not the kind of person with whom one strikes a bargain. So he agrees to do what Aslan asks, and after that he blurts out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Now here's what's interesting. Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big tears, compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Ashland, I know, grief is great. I think that's the heart of the Father. Now, if we had time, we could talk about how to deal with children, but that's another issue. Yes. There's a great price the Father has paid in giving us libertarian freedom. But it's because he chooses our love. He wants our love. And unless we have the freedom to choose to love him, then that's an impossible thing. But with that great possibility comes great consequences as well. Seen early in the book of Genesis. And now being played out through all of history. But if we'll simply say we don't have to look for the purpose. We simply believe there's always a reason. And we look to God. And not looking for the good. Pouring around in the ashes. It will never be enough. Now I have just a couple of... No I don't really... But if somebody has one question, I would answer that. Well, I wouldn't answer it. I'd, I'd, I'd take it, and then we'd see whether or not I'd answer it. I know, this is really just a lot. But maybe it'll give you something to think about. Now, I would say, well, I've written a book on this. No, that would be wrong, because I've written two books on this. Um, but I'm not here to sell books. But we have written a book. Uh, Creation, Order, Theodicy, God and Gratuitous Evil. Another book, God, Why This Evil. You can Google, you can actually go online. There's, there are many resources that you will find. Type in my name, Google my name. You'll find there are many resources. Uh, 
YouTubes and one thing or another where we work on this a little bit more. But thank you for your good patience and listen to the old farmer rattle on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things to the extent that they can be used for your kingdom and for your good and for the good of our people. We pray, Father, you might use it such. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.